0: And register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G Podcast. we got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Hey, uh, before we get going, I want to tell you about a master's program in New Arts Journalism at the School of Art Institute of Chicago. What is New Arts Journalism? Uh, It allows you to take journalism classes along with other kinds of writing classes along Uh, with all kinds of interdisciplinary stuff. Uh, You learn to code, you learn Adobe, uh, you learn how to make websites, how to write for the web, how to pitch a story, and then make an immersive story with all kinds of multimedia episodes. You might even learn how to make a podcast like this uh, one right here. The application deadline is January 10th. That is coming up January 10th, and before that, you've got to apply S Aic.edu slash long form. Get yourself a master's in new arts journalism at the School of Art Institute of Chicago. Thank you to them uh, for sponsoring this week's show. I also need to tell you about a new podcast. Eh, It's actually not that new, it's uh, been around just like the festival that it's based on. It's the Aspen Ideas to Go podcast. It features in-depth conversations with all kinds of innovative thinkers who speak at the Aspen Ideas Festival. You can get a front-row seat to talks from artists, scientists, business leaders, policymakers, and other really interesting people you might not have heard of. Uh, Subscribe to the Aspen Ideas to Go podcast on whatever podcast app you're currently listening to this podcast on, or go to aspenideas.org/podcast. slash Thank you very much to Aspen Ideas to go. Go subscribe. Let's do this show. Hello. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I am here not actually here, but on the phone with my good friend Max Linsky. Hello, Max. How are you, sir? Evan, Evan is uh He's on a side. He's back on it, man. He's in an, uh, another undisclosed location reporting. Uh, I was at an undisclosed location this week interviewing Errol Morris for this very Hey-o. podcast. Um, Errol Morris has a movie coming out uh, called American Dharma. It is uh, a bunch of conversations between him and Steve Bannon. Uh, but it's more than that. It's, it's kind of an essay about interviewing Steve Bannon. And it also has a lot of clips from old movies in it, and I highly recommend it. Aaron, I don't know that we've talked about this on the show before, but you and I have talked without microphones about how uh, the Long Form Podcast often feels like a scam for us. Sure. Like, uh, because there's microphones, because we do this thing, we get to have these conversations with people who we would 100% want to talk to in any other aspect of our lives also. And I feel like the fact that you got to go sit down with Errol Morris this week and talk about how he makes movies and how he asks questions is uh I don't know man. It's like uh it's the part of the scam. Real scam. Is uh is this related to our uh nascent festival con con? Longcon? <laughs> Longcon. Yeah. Longcon yeah. uh, long uh, coming to you in twenty twenty. Long uh Longcon slash concon con coming soon. Buy your tickets now. Just buy tickets, we'll be announcing more information. (laughs) Um, Errol Morris was excellent. He's the kind of person who has so many interests, it's hard to um, fit them into a single person. And if you're that kind of person with a lot of different interests, why not share them with the world with a newsletter from MailChimp? Uh, They make it really easy you can always uh, you can always change along the way. You know, you start your newsletter about uh, one thing; it becomes about something else. No one's gonna sue you. Uh, so true. That was the rare self segue, man. That was well done. Self segue. Yeah. Okay, here's Aaron with Errol Morris. What were your first experiences with interviewing like? Like, what was the first time you set up mics and taped someone?
1: Can I even remember? I do remember fairly well when I started recording interviews with murderers. I imagined, for whatever misguided reason, that I was going to do a PhD thesis on the insanity plea, which interested me then. It still interests me. Insanity is a really interesting concept. And in those days, I had very little money. I had a Sony tape recorder, cassette tape recorder. I would put it down on a table. Usually it was already running. I would very rarely ask permission. May I tape this? Is that okay with you? Instead, I would put the tape recorder down. Already running, clearly visible, clearly visible as a tape recorder, and proceed it's for one of a better way to describe it it 's the shut the fuck up school of interviewing based on shutting the fuck up and letting other people talk because you never know what you're going to hear. I just
0: watched your newest movie, American Dharma, yes. And the first thing I was thinking about in, in the wake of watching it was that, um, shut the fuck up and listen edict and the points in the movie where you do although, so,
1: although I do less of that in American Dharma than in most of the films that I've made, but please do well, go on. Well,
0: that was what I was going to ask you about is, um, what are the exceptions to the shut the fuck up and listen rule? How do you
1: choose, uh, how active to be in an interview of that kind? I'm not sure there's an algorithm that I could point to. There's certainly times when it just got to be too much, and I felt that I had to say something. But the idea is to figure out something about Bannon. Who is this guy? If it's true, and I believe it's more or less true, that he was responsible for electing Donald Trump in 2016, How did that happen? I would think everybody in America, or it should be at least a lot of people in America, should be interested in this question. How the fuck did this happen? How did it happen? And why? There's an interesting question. Certainly it's at the heart of my discussions with Steve Bannon. Is history chaotic? or is there some rhyme and reason to history? So I know that Bannon is in love with various cyclical theories of history. That You know, history is this vast turning wheel that keeps bringing up the same themes, the same issues periodically. And who are we? We are the people who are destined to do what we're destined to do. Fulfillment of dharma, duty, destiny, all these D words. So, on one hand, you have this guy in love with the Crusades. You know, why not go back a thousand years and relive all of the nightmares of history? Why not fragment the world into pieces so that we can have small nation states as we had in Europe in the 20th century? with, if memory serves me correctly, quite dismal results. And on the other side of this table, because we are talking to each other across a table. I think
0: it's made of some sort of antique bowling alley wood or something.
1: Oh, I don't know about that. (laughs) But on the other side of the table, you have me, who really sees history as chaotic, insane, unpredictable, a roulette ball bouncing around on a gaming table. One question I asked myself while making this film, if Western civilization is coming to an end, which it very well might be, what caused it? And I could come up with no better explanation than one man's irresistible desire to post pictures of his dick on the internet. Could someone like Anthony Weiner destroy not just America, but everything else as well? It appeals to me. It's perverse, it's sad, it's stupid. And Bannon, if anything, is this insane opportunist, a guy who sees a way to put his foot in the crack of the door and wedge it in there. So you can't close it under any circumstances, the opportunities of the internet, which other people, or a lot of other people fail to understand or to use, someone said to me, I can't even remember probably in an interview about the film saying well you know sex really wasn't part of the 2016 election and i would say oh really okay you really sort of believe that it was all about sex and it wasn't about glass ceiling sex it was about something far uglier and darker The whole way that sex was used, Bannon smiling like the cat who ate the canary with this look of supreme self-satisfaction as the Clinton accusers come into the room before the second debate. The Wiener ad, which I find quite remarkable, I put it in American Dharma, where they associate Wiener's dick pics with Hillary's emails. And they do it in a way that's effective, that touches some kind of nerve. So the kind of dark bullshit that's at the heart of Bannon is something that we all should pay attention to. I know
0: that the um, film most clearly echoes McNamara and the Fog of War in your own movieography, but the movie that I actually found myself thinking of the most in the wake of it was the movie you made about I'm going to mispronounce his name Fred Luchter.
1: Fred Lucher.
0: Fred Lucher. Uh, well, here's
1: some interesting yeah. factoid about Fred Lucher, who is a Holocaust denier and electric chair repairman. Somewhat of
0: an accidental Holocaust denier or a, um, a Holocaust denier by misadventure.
1: Well, I would say every single one of the movies I've ever made is a mystery. And there is a mystery about Fred Lucher. First of all, I did not name the movie correctly. It should have been called Honeymoon in Auschwitz. And if <laughs> ever I can change the name, I will do so gladly. Did you make an attempt to title it that? People said bad idea. <laughs> But again, I had so many bad ideas. I feel like it is true that, is it Mr. Death or Dr. Death was the final title? Well, he wasn't a doctor. He was a mister. So it's Mr. Death. And then yeah. people think he's Dr. Death. Bad title. Come I've on, had tro- Arrow. I talk
0: about that movie a lot, and no one ever says, I've also seen that movie, and I blame the title. Yeah. But it's a really interesting study of a person who, through opportunism, uh, joins a movement that was kind of the ultimate taboo movement of its time, and you've now made another film about someone who's the figurehead of a taboo movement.
1: Well, that's nice to hear. <laughs> See, with Fred Lucher and he did have his honeymoon in Auschwitz, by the way. That's not just a proposed title. It's a description of where he chose. I was endlessly fascinated by Fred I'm endlessly fascinated by anti-Semitism, I suppose. I was nine years old. Some kid in the neighborhood, I'm a Jew, by the way, called me a Christ killer. Likewise, by the way. You also were called a Christ killer? No, I'm also a Jew. I've
0: never been called a Christ killer. I think that's period period insult.
1: (laughs) I think it's a period insult, maybe. So I'm called a Christ killer. I don't know what the kid is talking about. So I go home to my mom and I say, Mom someone just called me a Christ killer. What's that about? And my mother explains to me, well, dear, that's anti-Semitism. And I said, well, I know what to do next time. Next time someone calls me a Christ killer, I say, I promise never to do it again. And I say, I'm sorry. So with Fred, Is he an anti-Semite? He's publishing these books and pamphlets with various anti-Semitic organizations, Holocaust deniers, the worst of the worst. And, you know, he drives a lot of people batshit crazy. How dare you? How dare you say this? How dare you say that? But that's where I kind of step up. If that's how you want to describe it, I want to know well, how did he end up in this bizarre position? Is he really an anti Semite? What does anti Semitism mean at its heart? I suppose if you say anti-Semitic things, you consort with anti-Semites. But to me, Fred Lucher speaks to something far more disturbing. Uh, the human capacity for credulity, the capacity to believe anything under any set of circumstances. Our brains are like mashed potatoes. Even nowadays, I mean, one of the things that's so disheartening about politics, and there's a million things disheartening about politics, is you watch people capable of believing anything, rationalizing anything, as if nothing really matters anymore. Truth doesn't matter. Rationality doesn't matter. Some kind of coherent argument for one thing over another doesn't matter. Was it always this way?
0: Well, we did go through most of history, believing in religious mythologies that we find irrational. I think, part of what for me feels the scariest about this. And you refer to being scared quite literally in American Dharma. This gives me fear is the feeling of going still scared. I'm so I'm still scared too. The feeling of going backwards, you know, if we had just come out of the cave and it was unsafe, but uh, you know, it was an improvement or at least we're sort of on the positive trajectory. Always as a kid, when I learned about the Holocaust as a young Jew, It's that feeling of uh, turning back towards barbarism, turning the bus of humanity around that is really scary. And I I think that American Dharma dramatizes that pretty effectively. Um, And I'm curious, like when you thought, okay, I'm going to tell the last story of the last two years since Trump has been president, how do you start telling that history, that history that is the necessary backstory to what, you are interviewing Steve Bannon about?
1: Well, there's a confusion right at the beginning that what we're talking about is an interview. I don't know what interviews are. Interviews can be a lot of things. (laughs) Um, Often when people say, well, it's an interview, it's by way of saying, well, we all know what an interview is. Well, maybe we all know what an interview is. I don't know what an interview is. I'm quite unclear about what it is, but I am a little bit more clear about what I was trying to do in making this movie. And it wasn't just simply to interview Steve Bannon, although that was part of it, it was also to allow Steve Bannon to talk so that I could figure out some things about who he is and why he's doing what he's doing. And I think this pisses a lot of people off. Instead of deplatforming platforming Bannon, it's allowing Bannon to speak why because i'm interested (laughs) so kill me sorry
0: hey i'm gonna pause things here because i want to tell you about our sponsor this week it's the master's program in new arts journalism at the school of the art institute of chicago so what is a master's in New Arts Journalism? It's an intensive two-year program that prepares students to write far more than traditional art reviews. They learn how to use Adobe Suite, building a publication in InDesign, fundamentals of Photoshop, how to code in HTML and CSS, build websites... And when someone pitches a story there, it's not just an interview. It's also taking the photographs, shooting video, creating a podcast episode, putting an article into a layout with custom typefaces. This is a different way to write about arts and culture, and it's a great city to do it in. Chicago is brimming with museums, galleries, working artists, unusual neighborhoods, and far more. If this kind of thing seems like a place you might like to take your career, and there are people who are coming there from all over the world, the application deadline is January 10th. For more info, go to saic.edu slash Again, that's the School of the Art Institute of Chicago's Masters in New Arts Journalism. Deadline January 10th, Saic edu slash long thanks for checking it out here's the show does the subject ever seem to you like it's too much trouble to be worth like knowing that you were going to get this reaction to bannon and knowing that it was curious for you
1: i didn't know that it would be oh you you've severe... been surprised by it okay I wouldn't say totally surprised. Yeah. But I would say, I mean, my usual response is that I knew it was going to be a shit storm. I didn't think it would be a shit hurricane. It's actually an essay much more than an interview. I think I'll stick with that. Why an essay? I'm always looking for a way in. With McNamara... It was a book that he had written about his experiences in the White House that had first-person passages that I found really interesting and really compelling. For example, his description of this moment during the Cuban Missile Crisis where Llewellyn Thompson tells President Kennedy to ignore one of the Khrushchev telegrams in the interest of avoiding atomic war and because he believes, based on his knowledge of Khrushchev, which is not inconsiderable, that Khrushchev had been misunderstood. With Rumsfeld, the way in was these endless Yellow Perils and Snowflakes, the memoranda that he wrote compulsively, the thousands of memoranda that he wrote during his tenure as Secretary of Defense during the Ford administration and then during the Bush administration, Bannon, it was movies. The fact that he loved movies, the fact that he had directed, perhaps I've lost track, a dozen documentary films, that he had been a movie producer, that he, as a graduate of Harvard Business School, had been involved in buying and selling motion picture businesses. This, of course, is the man of the people, the populist. 12 O'Clock High, which is a film that he saw the week he went to Harvard Business School. They showed the entire class this movie. The movie's actually a disturbing movie. Uh, I've seen literally thousands of American movies. I'd never seen 12 O'Clock High. Now I've seen it many times, Gregory Peck's Best Performance, an extraordinary movie, and an extraordinarily disturbing movie. Because what's it about? It's about our attempt to win the war against Nazi Germany with air power. And the fact that in order to win this war, you can't think about right or wrong. You can't think about your own life. You can't think about anything except winning, winning at all cost. A kind of nihilistic, deeply nihilistic film. Bannon loves it. And I believe it becomes kind of the zeitgeist of 2016, except this time, In 2016, instead of a war against fascism, how ironic. It's a war to promote fascism in America. Most of the fascist tropes reimagined without much nuance at all. The familiar stuff, beat up on foreigners, start blaming people, balkanizing or re-balkanizing the world. And then I guess maybe you take it over.
0: I want to ask you about those movies as a piece of the process of making this film. Sure. So, like, at what point is the process do you say, hey, I want to make a movie with Steve Bannon. Uh, What would you think about uh, us watching a bunch of old films and then talking about, like, how, how do you bring these elements together? Is that something that gets workshopped? Who decides what movies get watched?
1: Ultimately, I suppose I decide what movies get watched, but all the movies were suggested by Steve Bannon. Mm. They weren't just pulled out of a hat by me. 12 o'clock high is arguably his favorite movie. He gave me a list, not just of movies, but of scenes that he wanted to discuss from various movies. I suppose among the movies picked, Well, there's a whole number of amazing examples, but the example from John Ford's The Searchers, which is a movie, to be sure, about racism, a truly ambiguous, disturbing movie about John Wayne's search for the Indians who have abducted his niece. What scene does Bannon pick out of The Searchers? arguably one of the true masterpieces of American cinema, he picks the scene where John Wayne descends into shadow, looking at a girl who has been held captive by the Comanche and saying, she's not white. She's Comanche, filled with rage, filled with hatred. In that scene, he moves into shadow. His face is eclipsed. What the hell is going on here? What the hell is going on when Bannon says, made in Vietnam, about the uniforms worn by the girls' volleyball team? I had to
0: rewind that part and listen to the story twice because at first I thought I had perhaps missed a beat that explained why he was enraged about the Vietnamese and uniforms. what
1: conclusion did you come to? What do you think he was saying?
0: I think he was saying that it's horrifying that Americans are losing jobs while Vietnamese workers are former enemies from my own generation are thriving. It's almost like the analogy uh, requires you to take it at a very, very... Simplistic, sort of, what is good and evil level, I guess. How did you take it?
1: I still don't know. <laughs> but I do agree that a lot of these things force these into simplistic boxes. I thought that was one explanation. One explanation was you know, there should be really high tariffs that prevent us from trading with these people who are really our enemies. It seemed to have a racist edge to it, for me, that he didn't like the idea that non-whites were making clothing that was going to be worn by the girls of West Point.
0: It makes me think about my grandparents said they would never drive a Volkswagen. Yeah. They refused to patronize German businesses
1: for their whole lifetime. My mother would never buy a Ford. (laughs) <laughs> for similar reasons, because Henry Ford supposedly paid for the protocols of the Elders of Zion and was a known rabid anti-Semite. So I don't know exactly what he meant. I thought it was it was something that I had to listen to several times. You're not the only one to try to figure out what the hell's going on here. Is it just xenophobia? I think yes. If I were to do the pie graph, some piece of the pie is xenophobia. Is it racist? I would say yes. I would say part of the piece of the pie is racist. Is it against global trade? Yeah, that goes into the hopper as well. Again, rebalkanize the world, set everybody against everybody else. I thought about climate change, for example. Say climate change was a hoax, which it isn't, but say it was. Would it be so bad if all the countries of the world worked together towards some common end that just might save the planet or just might benefit humanity? Would that be such a bad thing? For these people, yes. Yeah, party of Davos, globalization, globalization. Hack it all up. Splinter it all up. Instead of creating any kind of global unity, go back to the 12th or the 11th centuries. I find it so frightening and so appalling. I mean, I don't know what's best for the world. Who the hell am I anyway? But I do know that that this stuff is not good. It's scary, and people should be dealing with it. This is not a time to pretend that this stuff didn't happen. I mean, one of the fantasies on the left is that Trump's election was just conspiracy. I would say that we have to look at it and try to understand it so that it doesn't happen again, or it will. In some form or another it
0: will when you take a moment like the Vietnam moment and I think your films consistently deliver moments like that that it feels like it's sort of happening in real time you don't I don't think know that Steve Bannon is gonna give this Vietnam analogy
1: not at all in fact all the people with him his producer you're getting something like a uh, cut the tape off kind of thing. No, 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 <laughs> no, no, not at all. They s- were moved by it and surprised. Oh, I've never heard that story before.
0: As an interviewer, when you're thinking on your feet and you get served up uh, a volleyball of that uh, sort, like where are you thinking I want to go with this? Knowing that it might take you a whole day or a whole year to unpack all the ideas in retrospect, what do you do in real time in the interview after a moment? like
1: I that? listen. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that has made me think and has continued to make me think in the movie. I mean, there are really destructive elements in politics. Maybe people have gotten so tired with everything that all they can possibly think of is destroying everything. And if we've come to that point, that's a really frightening and sad point in the world at large and in America in particular. I do believe that the anger towards the movie and towards me is just based on a kind of hopelessness that a lot of people feel. we've just been plunged into darkness and there doesn't seem to be any clear way out. Do you take it personally, that
0: criticism? Does it matter to you what people think about you?
1: I think you should take everything personally.
0: So, yes. Yes, it does. Because you you make movies about people who are McNamara, uh, Bannon, who professionally are hated. People who are willing to just take a huge amount of uh, the American population thinking that they are... I believe Lucifer incarnate is uh, brought up once in the movie. People who are very willing to be unpopular. And I find, as an interviewer myself, one of my great shortcomings is my desire to be liked. Um, When you're sitting down with a Bannon, like how
1: much does Bannon liking you even come into play? It probably does come into play. But I think beyond just some kind of Mr. Rogers idea, will you be my buddy, there's a desire to actually uncover something, learn something. I don't know exactly what it was that I saw in my series of Rumsfeld interviews, but at the end I had this terrible feeling that there wasn't very much there. There was just supreme self-satisfaction. That he was like some... Crazy Carney Barker. With Bannon, I'm left with a guy who I think has done a really excellent snow job on himself. He's convinced himself, I don't know who he thinks he is. Is he Lenin on the way to the Finland station? Is he some kind of revolutionary ideologue? who is going to become the supreme champion of the disenfranchised and the poor. I mean, we can have discussions. I mean, there's a kind of feeling of connection. I am well aware that my mother, who was a school teacher in the five towns on Long Island, a music teacher, my mother was forced to take these jobs because... My father died when I was two years old. She was left with no insurance. And yet she raised a family. She supported a fair number of people on a school teacher's salary. Could she have done that today? I don't know. I don't think so. So, is there a problem? Is there a systemic problem in American society about the distribution of wealth? You betcha. Are we doing anything to ameliorate it, to change it, anything to benefit the working peoples of America? I would say preciously little. I do ask him, you really think that these tax proposals coming out of the Trump administration benefit anything but the wealthy? There's a kind of delusional, crazy-ass element in all of this that evidently people respond to. I don't know for how long, but they respond to it. And I think it's just because there's a level of anger that has just peaked into the red zone, the horrible danger area where there may not be any going back. I don't know.
0: I thought you were going somewhere different with the story about your mother, which was that, uh, Dharma as it's defined in this movie, this, uh, sense of duty and purpose that maybe that was a closer to Dharma, you know, taking care of two children on your own. Then why is Dharma in all these movies, the man who destroys the world without morality or brings about the revolution? Why, uh, Why would we assume that dharma is to destroy the world, I guess?
1: I guess because when I think about my mom, and I do think about my mom all the time, I would say there's something different than dharma, which I would call courage. Did my mom act the way she did out of duty? Maybe. She was an uncommonly moral and decent person she felt very strongly that's what she had to do she loved her children and was dedicated to bringing them up and educating them dharma i don't know maybe i come from a different kind of tradition <laughs> this isn't all destiny there is no destiny in in history there's caprice there's inadvertence there's insanity there's confusion also I was really disturbed by the Destiny Dharma talk the D talk duty Destiny Dharma whatever because I felt one size fits all you can use it to justify anything you know why did X happen why did Y happen well it was destined
0: to happen It's like predicting a revolution is going to happen sometime in this country. Not only could that revolution be anything, in retrospect, we could say that every generation in this country has experienced a revolution.
1: I mean, it is a question. Is America capable of reforming itself? Our politics is just crazy. The fact that we have all of these principles embedded in our Constitution from 200-plus years ago, does the Electoral College make sense? Does a lot of things make sense anymore? We're going through so many changes in everything, in the way that information is conveyed to the public. I mean, it's a different world now than it was 20, 30 years ago. And what happens next? I don't know. Does
0: making films make sense now?
1: That's a good question that I have no answer for. I mean, I don't make films because it makes sense to make them. (laughs) Probably, if I thought carefully whether they made sense, I would stop immediately. I make them because I have a need to do it. I have a need to think about stuff. Writing and filmmaking, for me, is a form of thinking. It's an opportunity to think about something. And... I enjoy it. I really, in fact, enjoy it. I don't know what I would do without filmmaking.
0: I remember when I first saw uh, Thin Blue Line and someone said to me, um, oh yeah, like in that part there was a recreation. I was like, what? There was recreations in that movie? I have like a very strong ability to just suspend disbelief in almost anything I'm watching. And I feel like your use...
1: I have a strong ability to suspend belief in almost anything i watch. There you go. <laughs> but go on.
0: Um, well, I was thinking about all of the devices you've used, all of the essayistic tools that have been in different ones of your films. To me, I would have always said fast, cheap, and out of control is the most an essay, at least before American Dharma. But you have these different approaches, different ways of putting two things together that creates contrast, the same kinds of tools that are used in essays. This film, American Dharma, is, I think, the first of your films where uh, we're seeing tweets on the screen, we're seeing headline news, and we're actually seeing a lot of footage that we shot in the last 12 to 18 months. Yes. It's, um, It's history collapsing on itself a little bit as
1: essay. Which is what's happening. I mean, we're in a sea of information. Much of it's spurious. Some of it probably preciously little, factual. And it is part of the story of what is happening now. I think it is a good part of American Dharma, the fact that we see all of this stuff going on around it.
0: Was that like a negotiation among producers like how do you define that visual style and say there's gonna be tweets
1: on the screen we're doing it there's no discussion i mean there's my editor and myself working on a project and trying to fully realize it stephen hathaway was absolutely fabulous working with me on this movie but no there's no they evolve as you're going along I read Joshua Green. Joshua Green writes for Bloomberg, had written a book on Bannon. And this comes right after Fire and Fury, which probably was what drew me to making American Dharma in the first place. I haven't met Michael Wolf. I'd like to meet him.
0: Bannon was widely believed to be the major source behind yes, Fire and Fury. And I, I, believe I don't think that's a particularly contentious allegation for me to make on this no, podcast. No, he
1: seemed <laughs> to be the interesting, outspoken person in the Trump administration. And reading that, I wanted to talk to him, reading both of those books, Fire and Fury and Joshua Green's book about Bannon. And I believe it was in Joshua Green's book that I first read The 12 O'Clock High was his favorite movie. And it just seemed a way in. Let's create a movie. where We are inside of Bannon's head. People seem so puzzled. It's like they've never seen an Errol Morris film before. They seem so puzzled that I would put Bannon in this Quonset hut from 12 o'clock. And it's clear that the two are running parallel in some kind of crazy way.
0: It's a fantastic clock on the wall of the Quonset hut. I, I think you could clock. sell replicas of that clock. I, I'm in for one of those clocks if you start uh, selling them.
1: Yeah, and the cut from the clock in the movie to the clock in the set is one of my more satisfying cuts So ever. did you have that
0: clock fabricated? Sorry, I have to ask, because I looked online and was trying to find the clock. How do you get that
1: clock? You have really a great production designer. Adam Stockhausen is absolutely fabulous. He's Wes Anderson's production designer among other things that's a
0: strong resume and beat
1: yeah he does it's spielberg wes anderson blah 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 and also he's an uncommonly commonly good guy but yeah finding all of the props and the details for that it was really beautifully realized
0: i was reading mark singer's new yorker profile of you you, you got a new up. There are two of them. There's two. This is the one that's when, right after Thin Blue Line is coming out. Yes, this is the first one. You're probably 42 in the story, maybe. Something like I mean, that. Something like that. Um, I think that profile has actually uh, aged uh, very well. But one of the things I was struck by in rereading it was how hard it was to see your movies um, during the whole first part of your career where... You know, there's a few prints circulating. Yep. It's like if you went to the Roger Ebert Film Festival, maybe yep. you caught it. Um, and now you have this situation with American Dharma where I could read 500 takes on this movie by people who haven't yet seen the movie. And then when the movie is fully out, it will be accessible for five bucks or probably for free, depending on what subscriptions you have. Like... Tell me about that evolution for someone who's making art to go from like a four-digit audience to the massive audience, but in, in a backwards way.
1: Four-digit audience seems <laughs> too kind. Um, it's strange. It's strange that all of my films have gotten theatrical distribution. It's not clear how many people have actually seen any of them. A documentary was kind of unseen and unheard for the longest period of time. The line I always reference comes from Conan the Barbarian. It's one of John Milius' best lines. Used to be just another snake cult, now you see it everywhere. It has become virtually ubiquitous and because of all of these streaming services, endlessly available it's very 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 different when I made Gates of Heaven it wasn't clear that anyone would distribute it Dan Talbot at New Yorker Films kindly decided that he would it was accepted at the New York Film Festival which was kind of amazing but there was a newspaper strike this is 1978 is that possible it is newspaper strike in New York. No one knew about it. That movie would have vanished completely. If not for two Chicago critics, these critics that I knew very little about, Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel, started talking about Gates of Heaven. And they talked about it that year in four separate shows that they did, which was ridiculous. In many ways, I owe my career to those guys.
0: Do you have an alternate version of yourself that maybe hung it up after a couple of films and, you know? Just leading a quiet life now, uh, with a a few um, strange digitized films to show your kids. Of hey, I made a movie about a pet cemetery once when you were little. Your son's been on this show, by the way. Actually, I think you're 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 my first father-son interview. um, Really? Streak here. We have had Nat Rich and uh, Frank Rich on before, but that was two different hosts. This is both me. So yes, he was he was excellent.
1: When did you have Hamilton on? It,
0: it was around when he put out that Harper's story about the magic mushroom sure. guy. Fantastic story! It Pla- is a fantastic plug- plug story. Plug it, check it out, everyone.
1: I'm a fan. <laughs> a father and a fan.
0: You clearly, um, clearly, raged an original thinker. I've, I actually always wonder with you about with your son covers all this like wild experimental drug stuff, and I have a. Jewish mother. Do you, do you worry about, uh, about your son's, uh, psychedelic explorations? Of course.
1: <laughs> Why wouldn't I? <laughs> but I'm very proud of him as well. Yeah. He's created a lot of interesting thinking. I would say that his series, Hamilton's Pharmacopeia, is about thinking, thinking about the nature of drugs, about our attitudes towards drugs, He's interesting he's part chemist, part anthropologist, part documentary filmmaker, part a lot of different things
0: well you're you're part a lot of things yourself and I guess I wonder, like having raised a person who is part a lot of things and uh, had a career that's a lot of things like what would you say to someone who wanted to make work like in the spirit of your work now someone who didn't see necessarily purely within the documentary film or fiction and nonfiction categories. What would someone like you enter this world like now?
1: It's a lot easier, and I hope it remains easier. Who knows what's going to happen next? But it is possible now to be a certain kind of artist. I hate to use the word. It seems so pretentious, so pompous. But it's possible to be an artist in a way that was much harder years ago. And that's a great thing. It's actually a great thing. It's possible to make films, certain kinds of films, more cheaply, although people have found ways to spend more money than ever on motion picture production. Yeah. In that sense, we live live in a, a good time
0: is there stuff you still want to achieve? Like how many to do's are left on your own list? If I read all these old stories about you, there are always a list of stories that you've always wanted to do. Most of which are still unrealized. Even, you know, the ones from the eighties and nineties are still unrealized. What's still left out there for you and
1: and what are your ambitions for the, all those stories are still left and (laughs) there are more, there are more unfinished projects all the time. I'm starting two more series I started one already, and I'm starting a second one very soon. I'm working.
0: All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for this thank interview. Thank
1: you.
0: Hey, thanks for listening to the Long Form Podcast. Thanks to Errol Morris for doing the Long Form podcast. Thanks to the people who work with Errol Morris for helping set this up. Thank you to our editor Janelle Pfeiffer, my co-host Max Linsky, and Evan Ratliff. Our intern Marina Clementi. Oh, thank you so much to the people who make this show possible. Mailchimp and Pit Writers. I want to say something about Pit Writers. Max and I just got off a flight coming back from Pittsburgh. Last night we taped a very special live long form podcast at the writing program at the University of Pittsburgh. It was a great event. I really look forward to coming out. I'm not going to spoil who the guest was, but it's a really good episode. Uh should be out in the next few weeks. See you then.